this afternoon I'm with Dr Sally Bailey um, here in the Rothermere American Institute in the University of Oxford and we're going to be speaking about Emily Dickinson, an American poet, for the Great Writers Inspire Project website. Hello, thank you for asking me to speak. Um, I'm going to read aloud one of Dickinson's um, most engrossing poems. Um, I think you need to hear her you need to hear her words before we can have, a, have an idea about what she might be saying. She's a very difficult poet to grasp. So I'm going to read, I started early, took my dog. I started early, took my dog and visited the sea. The mermaids in the basement came out to look at me and frigates in the upper floor extended hempen hands, presuming me to be a mouse aground upon the sands. But no man moved me till the tide went past my simple shoe and past my apron and my belt and past my bodice too and made as he would eat me up as wholly as a dew upon a dandelion sleeve. And then I started too. And he, he followed close behind. I felt his silver heel upon my ankle. Then my shoes would overflow with pearl. Until we met the solid town, no one he seemed to know. And bowing with a mighty look at me, the sea withdrew. Now, when you first read a Dickinson poem, or when you first hear a Dickinson poem, you alight upon the easy stuff. And the easy stuff, I think, in this poem is in the centre of the poem. Um, and I'll just read um, four lines again. But no man moved me till the tide went past my simple shoe and past my apron and my belt and past my bodice too. So at the centre of this poem, we have the image of um, a, a, a body, we presume it's a female body, and much is made of her clothing. In fact, it sounds um, as though it might be a, a list, a shopping list, if you like, of the things that she's wearing. Um, shoe, apron, belt and bodice. And then later on in the poem, we get another catalogue, if you like, of things being worn. Silver heel passing over an ankle and then shoes and then the mention of some pearls. So we have a body and a sense of clothing or dress in the middle of the poem. Alongside that, or rather around that, we have the image of the sea. The sea surrounds us or hems us in from the start. I started early, took my dog and visited the sea. We have the idea of a speaker striking out early with her dog, leaving home to go for a walk, we presume, to look at the sea. But it's much more complicated than that, um, as we would expect with Dickinson. We have the idea of um, a domestic space, uh, a home, we presume. And typically in a Dickinson poem, we are quite often domestically based. The, thir the, the, the third line in the first stanza suddenly turns rather strange. And we have this extraordinary image of mermaids being kept in the basement, almost like pets, that rear their heads to look at the speaker. And I think one of the things that's going on here is um, a kind of study of place, what you might call topography. And one of the things that Dickinson is playing with here, I think, is who is looking at whom or what. What are the relationships between the speaker her dog, the sea, and the mermaids that come out 
to look curiously at, at the speaker. My sense here is that we're in the middle of a drama. And very often with Dickinson, you are in media res. You're in the middle of something. And I'm going to suggest that in this poem is basically in the middle of an afterlife scenario. So it seems as though we're starting out with a very ordinary day, a woman going out with her dog. But actually, I think underneath that image, there's another image. There's an older image, if you like. There's an antecedent. And I think that antecedent may well be Ophelia. Um, Shakespeare's Ophelia, that is. Um, Dickinson drew upon Shakespeare very often in her poetry. Um, and you often get a sense that Shakespeare's a silent shadow who's um, sitting over her shoulder. Images come and go like ghostly forms, like Hamlet's ghost, if you like. The image that I'm particularly thinking about here is the mermaids. It's one of the most striking images in Gertrude's narration of Ophelia's death, which we get as a, a, a explained or described, if you like, like a beautiful painting. It's one of the, the, the most painterly moments in, in Shakespeare's um, writing. Um, and Ophelia's body is hauled up from the bottom of um, from, from the bottom of the stream where she throws herself in. Um, so it's a post-suicide moment, but it's turned beautiful very quickly. And I think one of the things that Dickinson very often does is she wraps us um, inside another story. In this case, I'm quite sure it's, it is Ophelia's story. So there is another body there already, if you like. There's another literary body. Um, and it's Ophelia's body. Um, and what I, would like to, what I would like to suggest, and this is only one way of reading her poem, but I think it's, it's a plausible way of at least starting out, is to suggest that Dickinson poet, Dickinson's poem begins where Ophelia left off. So she is, in a sense, um, writing over or speaking over the body of Ophelia. Um, where else might we see Shakespeare in this poem? We have sea on either side, as I've already said. Um, we, we return to the sea. Um, we return to the sea through several things. We have frigates in the second stanza. Um, now, frigates are warships, um, and one of the images that Dickinson is, is known for is her image of the gun in My Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun. So, in the second stanza, we get a sense here of invasion, we get military language. Um, and, and again, if we're going with the idea of Ophelia, then we might also run with the idea of Hamlet, one of the uh, main predatory forces, if you like, in Hamlet is, of course, the threat to Denmark from the outside by Fortinbras, who is um, the leader of Norway at the time. So there, so there is a masculine language here, which I find very interesting, um, which upsets the, the very feminized body, if you like, that lies at the center, the image of the female form, written up in very nursery rhyme, simple folkloric language, apron, belt, bodice, simple shoe. There's this other language. Um, but Dickinson mixes it up um, with something quainter and more folkloric. Um, frigates in the upper floor. So we have frigates stationed strangely at home. Um, we're disoriented. We don't know whether we're inside or whether we're outside. And I think this is perhaps one of the crucial things to think about with Dickinson. She loves to mix up the relationships between inside space and outside space, but also mental space, interiority, 
and exteriority. So we have here a kind of tug of war, if you like, a struggle between inside and outside worlds, which is exactly, of course, the plot of Hamlet. Hamlet's struggling with his brain space um, and what's in there, what lurks in there. Um, and brain is one of the words that Dickinson uses very often, and she takes it directly from Shakespeare. So um, if we want to carry on with that idea of um, Shakespeare, I, I would suggest to you that um, Dickinson is a very Shakespearean writer. She preys upon the body of Shakespeare very often for her images without quite confessing to them directly. Um, we, we, it is as though this whole poem, in a sense, is a walk or a wade through the sea that is Shakespeare, and his forms come to the surface. There's another line here that reminds me of a Shakespearean play other than Hamlet, and that is, but no man moved me. That comes almost directly from um, The Merchant of Venice, which of course is a play set by the sea, um, in which the fate, if you like, of, um, of Antonio, um, who is our merchant, um, is dependent upon what goes on at sea. So, so she, again, there's another submerged form there. There's another female voice, which interrupts the male voice that has just come before it. Um, and when we start running with these submerged images and submerged forms, we start to get a sense of a kind of cross-dressing, if you like, between male and female parts and male and female voices. Um, and also registers, very literary registers, and then very childlike folkloric registers of the nursery rhyme that I've already pointed out to you. And also, I think, um, an insistence upon what is there as opposed to what isn't there, which again is very child childlike, I think. Um, and then in the fourth stanza, we have this strange image of consumption, and made as he would eat me up, as holy as a dew. And of course, she, I think she's probably playing there on the word dew. So then we're back into the Merchant of Venice. <laughs> we think we've left it for a moment, but no, we've, come, we've gone back to it. Um, one other thing that goes on in that stanza, and made as he would eat me up, whoever he is, we're never quite sure who the subjects and the objects are in a Dickinson poem. It's a kind of wishy-washy kaleidoscope. We have to let the tide of her images just wash over us and see what comes up to the surface. Um, but there's something else that goes on in this fourth stanza to do with small and large. We're suddenly, we're suddenly made very small. The images are miniaturized. After the word dew, which um, takes us immediately to the image of a flower or to something in nature, to a small drop of something, something minuscule, we then arrive upon a dandelion's sleeve. Um, and I think one of the, and this is perhaps the, one of the things I'll, I'll, I'll end with, is that right in the heart of this poem, um, after we've passed through the body of this figure, this female figure, um, which I've suggested to you is mixed up with a, with a male presence as well in a male language. We move away from the, the human and we arrive at a very delicate relationship with nature in which dew sits upon a dandelion's sleeve. So obviously we have there the idea of nature in dress. So we're no longer with a person, we're with um, a miniature displaced version of that person in the form of a dandelion. Now, a dandelion is something um, that can't bear much weight. 
Um, so there's something there in that image of the dandelion sleeve that is very delicate. Um, and we suspect if you think of that image of the dandelion sleeve as carrying the weight of the images of, that have come before it, particularly if we hear due in due, there's something very complex going on there, I think, um, between what's come before and what we arrive at here. It's almost as if Dickinson is saying, I'm blowing all that away now. I'm blowing that away upon the wind because the weight of the dandelion sleeve won't bear the weight of the images pressing down upon it that I've suggested to you. Very weighty images. After all, The Merchant of Venice is it, it's, it, you know, it's considered a, a romantic comedy, but it's quite far from being that in the actual drama. So there we are again. We, 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 we've arrived at a place um, of uncertainty um, and disorientation. Um, and we've, we, we have the image perhaps of Shylock and um, a very difficult relationship with a contract um, which involves a pound of flesh but then suddenly that's been blown away upon a, dandy, a dandelion sleeve and then the line that follows out of that and then I started to the word started or the verb started there which is a, 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 a doubling of the started out early of the earlier stanza just pricks us with with fear and I think I'm that's, that is what Dickinson does better than any poet I know. She pricks us um, with, with fear. And the way she goes about that is by playing upon images that she invites us to feed upon. And then she dismisses them as though they were, were never there in the first place. In terms of um, the relationship with Shakespeare that, that you're proposing in this poem, do you think Dickinson is in control of this relationship? Is it easy or is mm. it uneasy? It's a very uneasy relationship, and I think the, the shifting boundaries of the relationship between her subject and herself are always turning. Um, and quite often there is a turn in the poem, and a very oblique turn where you're not quite sure who, who the speaker is anymore and what her associations are. So right in the centre of the poem, after the dandelion sleeve image, and then I started to, started I think they're suggesting moving back or moving away from um, a subject or an object that's come close. And I'm going to suggest that is the, the haunting, if you like, of the weight of literary imagery that's come upon her. She moves back and away from it. She changes the register and she changes the relationship between her, the subject matter in her poem. We have the, suddenly we have the he foregrounded and he, he followed close behind. Now, is that Shylock, if we're going with that reading? Or is it her dog? Or is it herself? Has she, has she turned things around so that she's actually become a third person? So, so we're, it's confusing. Um, it's very, it's very confusing as to who sits in relation to whom or what. Um, that's part of her kaleidoscopic imagination. I think she wants us to. Um, she, it, it's almost like you know, it's it's almost um, as if she wants you to sh to shake up the foundation of of your brain and the way in which you perceive the world and your relationship to it. That's really why I that's how I feel anyway when I've when I've been through a Dickinson poem if you like. The mythology of Dickinson is very much mm -hmm. that um, she was she was reclusive and mm -hmm. she was more comfortable in these domestic spaces but to what extent do you think this poem challenges or supports mm -hmm. that that popular mythology of Dickinson? I think that's an excellent question because it starts out with this very brisk very modern sense of a woman going out with a dog. I started early took my dog there's this very um decided determined 
self-possessed, um, pre-possessed uh, declaration there of intent. Um, and also, I think as the poem continues, we get, along with the, the, the miniature realm that she holds in the centre with the dandelion sleeve, a, around that we have a much w a wider sense of space or place, which comes with the approach in the final stanza to the solid town. And it is almost as if she could be out at sea, one of the merchants in Merchant of Venice, you know, docking up into the, into the harbour of Venice, if you like. Um, and I think there, again, it's another one of her several role plays. She's playing out the kind of adventurer, buccaneer, um, male character, um, not afraid to leave home. <laughs>